This is Nobody Likes Casey McLean, with your host, the one and only person who thinks this podcast should exist, Casey McLean. Hey, it's Casey McLean. Welcome back to the podcast that you love to hate, that you like to be indifferent to, uh, that you don't listen to unless you're you. This is like when people, if you ever go to a comedy show, you'll uh, and there's not a lot of people in, in in attendance, the comedian will sometimes criticize the audience. They'll criticize the audience that is there for not being more people, as though uh, the people that actually chose to attend had some influence over the people not coming. This is uh, the Nobody Likes Casey McLean podcast, and you're listening. Thank you for listening. Uh, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, if, you, if you're listening to this on Anchor and you can't find the podcast on your preferred podcast app, let me know that specific app and I will do everything I can to get it on every app that people use. I've uh, spent a little time with the analytics. I've also looked at what other places uh, where other, other people get podcasts. Seems like Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts covers almost all the bases. But if you're not, if your base is not covered, let me know and I'll find specific for you. I'll make a special trip to your shitty podcast uh, aggregating website and submit it there so that you can get it on your preferred app. We are in, uh, yeah, week 848 of quarantine the world is pretty much the same as it was last week <laughs> oh what a boring time to be alive uh there's i mean very little exciting is going to happen to me in between podcasts i suppose uh i got some comedy stuff to talk about later i did have a moment last night i um i made a pork butt my dad was out of town for Father's Day and his birthday. So I made pork butt. We celebrated his birthday on Sunday and uh, made pulled pork out of it, pulled pork sandwiches. I brought some to a friend of mine. He had fried chicken, so he was giving me fried chicken. I brought my dog, which is, you know what I realized? This is something I realized after we got a dog, but I always thought, like, our dog has, like, some issues. And I was like... Man, it's it's tough because our dog has some issues and all these other people have these dogs that are like issue free. And then what I've realized as time goes on is that everybody's fucking dog has issues. Like everybody's kids have issues, by the way. And I'm not I'm not making the direct comparison, but so our dog has like she licks too much, she's too aggressive when she meets new people, not in like a violent way, but she's just so excited. And then she's not great at uh, de-escalating quickly. So people who don't like dogs, she's like the worst dog they could possibly meet. People who do like dogs, she's still going to have her nose in their butt. And uh, she does a thing where she, she doesn't bite, but she'll like kind of, <laughs> I don't know how to describe this without making it sound bad, but she'll like gnaw a little bit on your arm. Never would she break skin by any means. Um but it's like, I don't know what the point is. She licks a lot. 
Uh, she wants to jump up on people. She does the classic annoying dog shit. And some of it is like, yes, we've trained her out of some bad behavior, but some of it, I guess, is like, we're just hoping as she becomes less and less of a puppy that some of that behavior goes away. So I take my dog, who is a pit bull mix, border collie pit bull mix, to my friend's house, uh, just walking her because I'm leaving the house. He lives like five blocks away. And I forget to text him to let him know that I'm bringing my dog. And uh, he has a dog, another pit bull mix, um, who just doesn't, like, older dog doesn't get along great with other dogs, especially, I think, uh, dogs are extremely territorial over their own home, etc., etc. So I got I have my dog, dog on the leash in one hand, bag of dog shit in my hand that I had picked up, their bag in my other hand with pulled pork, a bun, uh, barbecue sauce, I set that on their porch, knock on the door. When their dog realizes that my dog is there, runs out, uh, starts, um, I would say like, not like fighting. There's such a, a negative connotation with dog fights. Definitely not just play wrestling, but somewhere between play wrestling and fighting with my dog, like being aggressive towards my dog, who is also like not, my dog is not, uh, She's not uh, averse to aggression and playing around. So they're like kind of at each other. And uh, he's got my friend has like a cement porch three steps up. Uh, and I'm s slowly stepping back and I can feel I literally in my mind, I was like, I'm for sure going to fall. Like, there's no doubt I'm going to fall. I got to try to make this as unimpactful as possible. And sure enough, I did fall. I fell from the third step of the porch uh, onto the sidewalk, uh, probably with some steps in between to soften the blow. Got a nice raspberry on my arm, uh, a little raspberry on my ankle, um, a scrape on my hand. Uh, nothing big, nothing, no, no, uh, my head didn't hit through. I did land on my dog, by the way, a little bit. She was pinned under my body at some point. This is how I know I didn't fall that hard because she's like totally fine, unfazed. Life is going well for her, and uh, yeah, so I'm uh, I'm a little beat up, a little bruised, the ego's bruised. Falling as an adult man is one of the most embarrassing things that can happen. I, like, man, I guess like five, I don't know, it would have been longer than that probably. Like six or seven years ago, I had a birthday, and I got just obliterated drunk, and I was uh, smoking a cigar, walking down a hill, and I think I might have even started skipping as a joke. And then the joke turned on me because my skipping, my drunken skipping turned into drunken rolling down the hill. Uh, and I had, you know, scraped knees and all that stuff. So falling down as an adult man, very embarrassing. The other thing is, is like as a fat dude, you, the last thing you like falling could have real consequences. And so you do so much to not fall. You try to not fall so hard and uh, it becomes just even more, you look even more pathetic. Luckily, my dog, um, I landed on her shielding her view of how uh, little respect I deserve. And then the only other thing that's happened in my life that's uh, extremely exciting is my daughter started, she lifted herself up and started standing on her own. Things are happening.
Uh, I'm not Mr. Brightside with this quarantine stuff. I'm not constantly trying to be the person who's uh, seeing the bright side of everything. I'm so stressed out. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. Like, I can't handle watching a sad movie right now. That's why, like, throughout... I mean, people are, are experiencing anxiety at such a high rate through this pandemic and uh, the racial unrest, protests, and all that. Um, and I think, like, you have to... This is why I think sometimes it's better to just donate money because I'm on board with the idea that you have to check out some of the time. I made fun of a guy on this podcast and I made fun of there's a specific person who has really, I think, been embarrassing uh, in my life the way that he's like attempted to co-opt this Black Lives Matter movement as his movement. He's a he's a middle aged white guy, by the way. Uh, who's never talked about Black Lives Matter or racial inequality ever before in his life, to to my knowledge, and uh, and then like made it two and a half weeks, and now he's done talking about it. He was like unfollowing people on social media because uh, they weren't doing enough, and then suddenly they weren't going hard enough for the movement. And yeah, this is the thing. My my point. I'm making fun of him isn't that it's not difficult yes it's extremely difficult to live in that headspace constantly uh, it's uh what is that called um oh my god uh protest fatigue something like that activism fatigue that people have been making fun of yeah that's that's true it's it's also like other people are living with the actual byproducts of inequality every single fucking day. So if you're not going to maintain your commitment to be calling your state lawmakers every day, as sometimes people like to post on social media, this one person in particular, if you're not going to just donate money because your money isn't reliant on you, uh, and so, I mean, like, it sounds, donate money, donate money to uh, bail relief funds, to bail reform organizations. That's my preference, I would say, because I think, like, the Minnesota Bail Relief Fund, for example, became the cause celeb. And then they have so much money that they're like, they could pay bail for every single person in, in jail for, like, years, I believe. And because of the way Minnesota state law works, they can't transfer the money to other organizations. And I guess, by the way, as a person who donates to charity on, on occasion, I would, my preference would be that, uh, there's some assurance that the money that I'm giving is going to go to a cause that I deem worthy of my money. So I can understand why they wouldn't be allowed to, to shift that money around. But I, uh, So I think that if you donate to uh, bail funds specifically that are not bail funds, bail reform organizations that are trying to get rid of bail or national organizations that are very unlikely because Minnesota now has this problem. But once this is out of our uh, immediate consciousness, and again, that is like that is a white privilege, whatever. Like I'm that, that stuff's right. Uh, once it is a, uh, out of there's the problem is still going to exist. 
the negative impacts of the bail system are still going to exist. And Minnesota, this organization uh, in Minnesota, is going to have so much money that they can't, like, reallocate to a more necessary um, use when the time comes. So, but that's like, donate your money to those things. Donate your money to the NAACP, to the ACLU, to uh, organizations that are trying to hold up uh, our civil rights. Our meaning us as Americans, also the civil rights of black and brown people, uh, black and indigenous people in this country. Um, yeah, I mean, that's like, it's fine. I was telling my friend, like, I can't even handle right now. Like there, people try to send you like an, uh, an Elijah McClain video and you're, yeah, it's horrific. I, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to have, like, I grew up with a diverse group of friends despite not going to the most diverse school in the world. I had a diverse group of friends. I'm aware, I've been, I've long been aware uh, of racial inequality. What I'm telling, like, my thing is, right now I am in a mental state where I, like, watching, I can't watch the, my wife watches This Is Us. And before all this was going on, I couldn't watch like the last couple episodes of This Is Us because it's too sad. Like I'm trying to just maintain a psyche that can yes, like I said last last episode, good news is for the weak. I don't need good news. Sometimes I need no news. The Elijah McClain, uh his death, his murder, it's tragic. It's horrible. Brianna Taylor, it's horrible. Um you don't need to, con I don't need convincing that it's horrible. I'm also not a person like, I don't, I, I, that's, I guess this is why I like comedy. I don't seek out sad stories on a regular basis. Today's guest on the podcast is Harry Riley. He's a friend of mine, a uh, comic in Spokane who is, I, I mean, I think when I started comedy, he was pretty unanimously the, the best comic in Spokane. I think some people, um, have caught up to Harry Riley because there's been the Spokane comedy scene is kind of growing and evolving and getting better. And he's acted as a mentor to many people. Also, he's a really, really nice guy. I worked with him in, I think February, which I guess now it's just so crazy to think that that was five months ago because that was one of the last, uh, like feature gigs that I had before, before everything shut down. Um, Harry and I, there, I will say this, let me start with this. There was a slight audio issue, um, in the recording. So maybe it won't be mixed as beautifully <laughs> as this part is. Uh, the interview is still great. Also it's on a uh, full length interview. So I edited some stuff. I'm trying to make these interviews about 45, 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, I couldn't get this down to 45 and still feel like you got a complete section of the interview but the the full interview is about 90 minutes long it's available on patreon uh all of the all of the interviews that i've done so far there is a full length version available on patreon i also had the patreon mistakenly set up to cost five dollars per creation and then i was pumping three creations per episode which is video 
full-length audio and ad-free audio, full-length audio of the interview, full-length video of the interview, and ad-free audio uh, of the episode, that's fixed. It's five bucks a month to get all that stuff. Uh, so go check that out, patreon.com slash the Casey McLean. And please enjoy this interview with Harry Riley. Uh, if it's if you're a patron, coming up next, and if not, after this word from our sponsors. Hey, this is the Nobody Likes Casey McLean podcast. Please check out my stand updates at thecaseymclean.com. Also, follow me on all social media at thecaseymclean. Check out stand up clips and videos of mine at youtube.com slash caseymclean. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is where I host this podcast, it's where the file sits. It's also a great place. If you want to start a podcast where you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, when you're hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast to all the listening platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever you're listening to this podcast on, you can get your podcast to that platform very easily. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Harry J. Riley has a podcast called The King Pepper Snake Show. His entire social media presence and even a comedy album is under the handle King Pepper Snake. Casey asks him about why that's his handle. Don't worry. Harry is a Spokane comedy legend and an amazing comic. you ever had another comic over to your house you're a mystery this is why i'm asking harry i've no. you, oh you're I, that was my suspicion is that you've never had another well, comic over to your house well when i um graduated college in 2012 i had a couple comedians come over for like a cookout but and then you killed them after so they <laughs> <laughs> they don't do comedy anymore so i guess they did die <laughs> their heart died i guess <laughs> their soul died yeah that's um, yeah that's i have kind of a i'm like uh i'm not a recluse i've had i've had a handful of comedians over to my house but i'm not like i don't i'm not dying to have comedians over to my house so this is the thing you could either live this is uh you could live with like um jars of piss in the room that you're in right now <laughs> or in a mansion like those are you're like uh you're <laughs> you're laughing like it's jars of piss it's a mansion with jars of piss. <laughs> a mansion of piss <laughs> so, uh also you're a dad yeah so i, I assume you, what what tell me tell me about because I, I think i've seen a picture of your house before actually Maybe on social media, or I've been stalking you. And <laughs> you had no idea. Uh, what part of Spokane do you live in? I live, oh shoot, Northside. Okay, I've lived here for so long, but I still don't know like um, the directions of. But I've been told I lived on I live on the north side. Okay, so I my live in the, the Hilliard area. Hilliard, my grandpa lived off of what is that highway 
I think three, maybe three ninety five. Yes, I know that spot. Does that go to? Yeah, that goes up to Deer Park. So he lived right by uh, Highway three ninety five. Yeah. Um. Yep. Pretty close to there, and then I think at I some probably point, get. Well, they've been working on a north south. They've been working on a north south um section of it, so I can get there within like five minutes now. But it was like a fifteen minute drive um to get there. Okay, close by. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think. Uh, do you know where Brentwood? I'm looking at a, a map of. Um, this is very exciting for the listeners. I'm looking at a map <laughs> of Spokane, and I think Brentwood Elementary School is very close to where he lived. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's a good. That's like the good part of Spokane, right? I mean, well, people don't. People usually consider here the poor part of um, Spokane, but. I mean, I don't, I don't notice a difference between this part of Spokane and any other part of Spokane. It all looks like Spokane to me. Is that like when I when I went to Spokane to visit my grandpa? Um, he's passed away. So, but when I like I don't know, fifteen years ago, uh, I went out there and I was I was driving, and I remember him saying like, he goes, Casey. So there's a big street called Division that actually yeah. seems to uh, turn into Highway 395 or maybe is whatever. I don't know. It's 395. Yeah. looks like both. Uh, but he goes, you got to be, you got to be really careful on division, Casey. People are crazy. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is like, this would be the 18th busiest street <laughs> in Tacoma. Like this is, this is a, a breeze. <laughs> like what I had to wait through a light one time. Whoa. That's like, uh, and I kind of feel like that way when I'm in Spokane, where it's like people are like, uh, like, oh, that's the bad part of town, and I'm like, oh no, I don't think you know a bad part of town. Like, yeah, they, the, when they say because when I moved, I moved to Hilliard in uh, 2011, and people were like, oh man, that's the hood, and I'm like, really? <laughs> because nothing hood ish goes on here. There's nothing that happens here is it, it, it's basically I'm surrounded by retirees you know I'm, I'm just it, there's no activity I mean every so often you'll get like a hobo that's like walking down the street with like a big old tote or something mm-hmm. or like he's got three bicycle frames on him or something like that but I mean that's just Spokane <laughs> that's not that, that that's not anything special that happens in my neighborhood like every other week so <laughs> it's not uh it does not seem to be spokane specific yeah it doesn't see it it i i think this is what i um feel i feel like people get their information and they live with that information even when things change around them mm-hmm. and i think uh i think the information that they have about certain areas of the city is about 10 years behind the reality of it. Yeah. I'm starting to kind of think that just like every place is pretty good in the world. Yeah. And, uh, I mean in the United States anyway, I'm sure there's, uh, problems other places. And also like I say, I mean, maybe I should just say every place in Washington isn't too bad. Cause yeah, there's a, like Tacoma has a reputation that's from like 25 years ago. Yeah. I, 
the only thing I knew about Washington before I moved here was that Tacoma was crime ridden mm -hmm. and that was only because of cops because I always saw Tacoma on cops. Right. That's the that's the only thing I, and then when I actually went and walked around Tacoma I'm like this this town is pretty cool. This, <laughs> I don't there's no I haven't gotten mugged. There's nobody just running down the street with a with a bag with a giant money sign on it. I, it it's just it's just a you know like a a normal neighborhood where there's sections in it that might have higher than normal crime but that's that's to be expected from any large city yeah i always like like if you were to look at a when we were looking at houses i would look at um trulia.com has like crime density maps over all the houses yeah and so we live one block off of sixth avenue in tacoma which is like the crazy like nightlife part of tacoma okay and uh if you looked at trulia the crime density is like very high where we live yeah but the crimes are like vandalism <laughs> uh a bar fight a dui like I, these aren't like necessarily they're not like random acts of violence yeah. in my neighborhood and then it's like there's a, a neighborhood called hilltop where it has like an even worse reputation yeah i've heard of that one yeah. yeah and you're like you're like they're like oh isn't it dangerous in hilltop i mean like by that bakery where there's a bunch of <laughs> is somebody pelting you with uh macarons or something like that like what what is so dangerous in this neighborhood i mean cer certainly there's like um you know like I, I think there's probably like some some parts of tacoma that are poor and maybe that brings out uh, a level of like mental illness that we're not comfortable with. Yeah, but that's not like yeah. Wow, well, this got very serious. Can you I... tell me about your uh, <laughs> your Twitter handle, King Pepper Snake? Is that a penis reference? No, it's not a penis reference. I've always assumed it was a penis reference. No, it was. I was. This was years ago, man. It probably more than 10 years ago i was uh i was on facebook and i was kind of just messing with people and uh i just called them i called them pepper snakes and uh i'm the king of the pepper snakes and you know somebody was like yeah you're king pepper snake and i was like oh that sounds that sounds pretty good i'm gonna go with that it it, it i didn't even you know it wasn't it was just a whole bunch of accidents. I am curious to know. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask uh, our mutual friend Ryan McComb before I release this episode if he thought the King Pepper Snake was a, re a reference to your penis because I always oh assumed Ryan thinks everything is about a penis though. That's true. He is very penis heavy. That's a that's a good way to be. If you're gonna be heavy anywhere, that's where I would choose to be heavy. Personally, I'm heavy everywhere else. That's <laughs> um. Also, by the way, I don't think that's a that's not hurting your level of eccentricity. The fact that you have a random <laughs> uh, King Pepper Snake story that became your entire <laughs> online identity, oh, uh, man. including it's, an album title, right? Yeah, um, my second um, album. I, that's what I named it. It is hard for people to find you too. 
because people <laughs> people are like, oh, I should look for Harry J. Rollins. Like, nope, everything is King Pepper Snake, and then they look at you like, what? That that's just two. That's that that's three random words that you just put together. You're like, yep. Yeah, I've I've always assumed that it was like that's like that's a pretty good porn name. King Pepper Snake <laughs> is a pretty good porn name. <laughs> Um, I brought this up with Megan Gailey last week and it made me think of you also because you're uh, a black guy doing comedy in Spokane and I've heard Hannibal Burris talk about how he has <laughs> like an act that isn't really like uh, designed for any specific race right it's not like it's designed for black people and when he would be on a poster, white people would not come to the show early in his career. Now he's like recognizable and will sell out uh, yeah. multiple nights everywhere, right? And ad shows and all that. Yeah. Do you have you had that experience at all? Do you think that uh, because because I, I don't think you're like again I I don't think it's like you have a white act or a black act. I think you have an act that's funny. But do you think that? there's any like especially in spokane where you're uh one of 11 black people that live there uh the other one's my uncle by the way so uh the, or the, one of the other uh i have i do have a black uncle from spokane uh which is that i think that makes me the 12th blackest guy in spokane by the way but <laughs> uh do you think that's affected you like the way comedy audiences flock or do not flock to your comedy i i, I think so uh because um Spokane because Spokane is more on the on the conservative side. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that they they see your face on the poster and they automatically assume what you're gonna be talking about. And uh I've I've had people just come up to me after shows and was like, Oh, I thought you was just gonna do black comedy, which I don't know what that I don't know what that means. Um, do you not know what it means, or do you think that they're just like what you're saying is that they're ignorant? Because I know I think I know what they mean. I mean, I I I, kind of, I get what they mean, but at the same time, I feel like anything said by you know filtered you know through your um, thoughts and experiences are is what those jokes. Uh, yeah, or are, are gonna be about. I I understand that they think I'm gonna do like stereotypical, right? Um, like the stuff that you used to see on um, Comic View and and stuff like that. That was very popular in the '90s. But if you've watched comedy in the past ten, fifteen years, even black comics, well, at least the newer black comics. I can't talk for the. I w I just watched a clip of Eddie Griffin. And I was like. Oh my God, he's still doing. <laughs> he's still doing that type of stuff. I thought I saw the. I think I probably saw the same clip as you, and I thought it was pretty funny, though. Uh, yeah, it was funny, but I was like, "Damn, dude, that you, you're Eddie Griffin. I know you can write jokes. Mm -hmm. Is this what you're relying on?" <clears throat> and, and and I made an effort to not do that. I I didn't want to be seen as. Oh, here's another black comedian that's going to do 
oh white people do this black people do that yeah i didn't want to i didn't want to i didn't want to do that so i i made an effort in uh in, in in writing my act like that and i think for the most part when i see people doing that i'm just like man they just went the simplest route they could go mm -hmm. to get on stage i i think what you're saying about like the last 10 15 years or whatever is true but i think there's also what ha what has happened is that there is like another uh entire comedy industry that's devoted to those like i guess more stereotypically black comics yeah. that they sell tickets like crazy but they're not subject to the same scrutiny as say like mainstream comics uh like you wouldn't even you know i remember so I worked the door at Tacoma Comedy Club when Arnez J headlined. Yeah. I hadn't even heard of Arnez J. I'd seen his clip and I'm like, you know, I'm like a comedy fan, but like, you know, I like uh Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy I watched growing up. Uh yeah. I have not watched like a lot of cuz I I've never I haven't gone and watched like a lot of uh black comics because when i was growing up what we had available in terms of stand-up comedy was uh bt so yeah. like the the majority of the early stand-up i watched was like comic view or, or whatever uh def jam and i haven't since then but arnes j sold out like six shows. and by the way crushed harder than i've heard anyone crush ever in my entire life like I still talk he does he did eighty minutes and like literally yeah. crushed the whole eighty minutes. Uh he's like a very like a southern guy, like very thick southern accent. And so like yeah. I think there were certainly like multiple cultural differences where I wasn't like uh I wasn't like, oh, this is yeah, this is like really connecting with me. Yeah. But the the crowd was he was connecting with that crowd in a way that I've never connected with a crowd. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and so, like, yeah, I think it does. I think that still exists. I think that what like mainstream comedy and like the gatekeepers of mainstream comedy will allow to ascend to the top of comedy is yeah. not that. Yeah, it's not. It's not the um, blue collar type of comedy. Mm -hmm. It's not the the I call it the George Lopez type of comedy where you're it's Spanglish, mm -hmm. where you're mixing um, Spanish words and you the the Spanish words are usually the punchlines and stuff like that. Um, that Chitlin Circuit type of comedy from um, a lot of black folks. I think that's not. I think that's like on the on the edges and I and because of me living in Spokane I had to tailor my act to the people that are going to consume the act mm -hmm. because if I kept it because if I did um more of a stereotypical black act I wouldn't have gotten any work to begin with so I, I just had to tailor it to what I uh I had to tailor it to what was around me. Do you think people just sometimes ever just hear that, even though that's not what you're saying? Can I, I'll give you an example. I was, uh, I was at the show and there was a black comic on stage 
And he was doing it like a regular like relationship joke, not racial humor, not like white people are like this, black people are like this. And a guy was just drunk and not there for the show. Yeah. And walked up to the stage and goes, "Why don't you say something about uh something nice about white people for a change?" And I was like, "Oh, like he wasn't listening." <laughs> like Yeah. That's not what the guy was saying. He wasn't saying anything bad about that guy. Just all he heard was a black guy talking and assumed black comedian talking and assumed that he was uh, making negative comparisons of white people to black people. I, I think I think that's something that I was even a, a, aware of. And I think that's why, especially when I first started my comedy um was kind of um, absurd Mm -hmm. to um, begin with because I didn't want any doubt as to what I was doing uh, on stage. And, but you still have people who, it it seems like they're sitting in the audience waiting for your punchlines to be what they thought it was going to be about. Right. When they saw you get up on stage and when you're done, they come up to you and they express like, oh man, you're, you're not what I thought I was going to see. And it's like, well, that's, that's how you're supposed to approach comedy in general. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to just assume that um, the person that's telling you jokes, especially if you haven't heard them before, that the jokes that you're about to hear are going to be um, a, a they're going to lead a certain way. Yeah. Uh, and I, and for a little while I used to take pride in that, but then I was like, man, that, that, that doesn't say anything good about me. That just says, um, something bad about them is that they assume something about you. Like when, when a white, when a, when a skinny white comic gets on stage, I don't assume that they're, you know, they're going to talk about in a certain situations. Right. When a woman get on stage, I don't assume that she's going to talk about any certain situations. So I would assume that other people think like that as well. But, you know, from doing comedy, it that's not the case. What's the most racist thing someone has said to you after a show? Oh, I, I already told you, but I kind of I kind of took all the bad words out. <laughs> when the guy came up to me and was like, oh, I thought you was going to say, I thought you was going to do um, black people jokes. He didn't say black people jokes. He said the N-word. Really? Yeah, and I was I was just, I mean, I was also in northern Idaho, so I wasn't really, I, I wasn't really expecting anything less from, from at least one of these people that yeah. was at the show. And I was just, I was just dumbfounded. Well, I wasn't, you know, I, I say dumbfounded, but I wasn't really. I was kind of expecting it. Um, just from the laughs that I was getting during the show, it felt like they had this anxiety about what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. And throughout the hour that I was up there doing my thing, it felt like every laugh was a release of like, oh, he's not... Oh, he's not doing what I thought he was going to do. Like, oh, we made it through another minute without a without a white people joke. Yeah, that, that's what I really <laughs> thought was going to 
and I made and and that show, I, I remember it because I I made a, I, I in my mind I said I'm not gonna give them any like ammunition to kind of turn against me because I knew where I was, and, and I was like I'm not gonna give them any any ammunition for them to refuse uh, my jokes. So I went in there with with material that I knew, well, I thought um, was not going to have them turn on me, even though, you know, a normal audience, an audience where people are just there for jokes would not, you know, bat an eye at what you were saying. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, I had a person say something racist to me this now just feels like i'm just trying to wedge the racist thing someone said to me uh into this i was in spokane and i had a like a really new joke about when we got our dog yeah and she's a um i have a joke that i say uh we have this dog she's like one of those hybrid breeds with one of those stupid names like uh she's a border collie mix but they call her a uh pit bull <laughs> and uh which is i I've actually gotten I, I don't know that the joke will ever get like what I think it what I think the people that like it think it deserves because it's like yeah. you have to have like looked for a dog on like an adoption website and realized that they are calling every single if they call it a lab mix, it's a pit bull. If, <laughs> they, if they call it a boxer mix, it's a pit bull. If they call it a bulldog mix, it's a pit bull. That's fine. Uh <laughs> But this lady came up to me and she's like, oh, I have a great pit bull also. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm not like uh, I have done that Rebecca Corey show a couple of years in a row now. But I was like, I'm not like uh, specifically I don't love pit bulls. We just really love our dog. And yeah. um, she's like, yeah, pit bulls, they're great dogs as long as black people don't own them. And I was like, Gracious. what the fuck? <laughs> like, I, I mean, even like, you know, I don't like I it's definitely uh, I am not the. I don't have a perfect record of, and I think white people in general probably uh, don't have a perfect record of when something blatantly racist is said in front of us. <laughs> I don't know what the right move is in that situation, right? Like, I def I didn't laugh. I was like, "That's pretty fucked up," but like, what do I beat this lady up? Like, what do I do? Like, I don't, I don't know what the. Uh, so like, I mean, I was like, I was like, "All right, take it easy." Like, that's a pretty fucking crazy thing to say. Uh. But I'm sure that lady just goes about her life. I didn't change this woman. She still goes about her life thinking that uh, black people are the reason that some pit bulls act out. Yeah. That, and see, I feel like in situations like that, you're not changing anybody. So the best thing to do is just be. There's no reason to uh, um, make it a, a giant deal. I feel like, especially nowadays, people would probably, you know, pull out their phone and try to get her to say something more messed up. Yeah. Uh, I just feel like what you did of just being like, whew, that is, that is off the wall. And just because I feel like that interaction is better than, uh, saying how could you say that how the, th that's ridiculous because right. that makes them dig in their heels and go well this is this is the hill I'm willing to die on but but when people I feel like when 
when people just take these people for what they really are, just idiots, then I feel like that's something that they get to reflect on and they don't have, they don't get the defense of, well, they were turning on me. So I had to turn on them. It's more like, well, I said something really dumb and I was just left there in the wind. I feel like that's a better strategy than just attacking this person. I have a, I have a theory uh, that I want to run by you because the world needs more theories about racism from white dudes, right? <laughs> like that is, we are hungry for that in this time. Uh, I would say that I agree with what you're saying, not to say that, uh, not just because it uh, affirms my own behavior, <laughs> but I think another thing is that we, Okay, I'm going to say it the crazy way, and then I'm going to explain it, which is that we need to reduce the penalty for incidental racism for people. So, like right, like you said, if I said to that lady, like, and actually that's, like, not even a great example. That's not incidental racism. That's a lady saying, like, a blatantly racist thing. Yeah. But, like, uh, there's, like, coded language that people you use right like uh people will say like someone's articulate or well-spoken yeah which is like it is like what it communicates is that you had an expectation that they would not be articulate and well-spoken uh and i think that when we go that's kind that's a racist thing to say it's not only is it like slightly confusing for that person because they think they're giving a compliment but also we have created this a standard where if I get called a racist, I'm worried that I'm going to lose my job. And so I have to, I can't reflect on my own racism because I have to defend myself because being labeled a racist could be a life sentence or could be a severe impact on my, uh, so I think that we all harbor some racism And we should be allowed to go like you you can't I should be able to tell like a a friend of mine that's kind of racist. And they go, oh, you know what? I've never thought of it that way. Uh, That is kind of racist. I guess I'll change my behavior in the future. But once you once you put that word into the ecosystem, it changes the whole tone of the conversation. Yeah, I, I, I feel like maybe we should stop using the term racist for certain situations and just say ignorant Mm -hmm. because then because I feel like a lot of people don't want that tag of racist because you know like you said you could lose your livelihood there's a lot of um, repercussions to that but I I feel like just going to someone who's like man that's a that was a very ignorant statement. And then, you know, kind of telling them why kind of diffuses that self-destruct that it seems like is in a lot of people's mind when you call them a racist. It seems like they just want to, well, if I'm going to be racist, I might as well, you know, I might as well stick to it or I got to defend myself so I don't lose everything. And it just digs them a bigger hole big maybe just calling them ignorant will kind of um uh tamper that down a little bit yeah i mean i think we've we've like changed the definition of racism in the last 
couple years to mean many different things but we haven't changed the way we still kind of just put people in one bucket that is racist so are you a guy that's carrying a tiki torch in charlottesville or are you somebody asking to touch a black woman's hair like they're both acts that are like kind of racist or very racist (laughs) i guess they're not both acts that are kind of racist there's like the very racist people in charlottesville and then someone who is ignorant like you said yeah if touching someone's hair wanting to touch someone's hair that's ignorant Mm -hmm. i I would i i don't care about it i i just but you you can understand why someone would be annoyed by that yeah you're not you're, you're not a you're not a donkey at a petting zoo right um, so I would just call that ignorant because they just don't understand the um, implications of that. Yeah. Just like, man, I like what that lady said. I feel like that's just a racist statement. Yeah, I agree. Be, be, because that because um, she should have information that would tell her otherwise, but she just ignored it because the 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 opinion that she has is the one that she's lived with so that's the yeah. one that she's willing to go with so that's that would be racism petting you know i said petting wanting to touch <laughs> someone's hair would be ignorant because you just don't you just don't know you're just inquisitive and you just wanted to see yeah all right well now that we've solved racism <laughs> permanently uh, I do feel like I do feel like a lot of people I do feel like this line keeps getting redrawn mm-hmm. and old people older people can't keep up with what's with what's changing because you know if if you were born in the 50s or 60s you probably were saying colored mm-hmm. you were probably you know calling women dames you're probably calling um, Asian people Orientals. You, yeah. And now um, you're probably calling um, Native people Indians. You know, all these things have changed. And, and you're like, all right, all right, all right, wait. So I can't I can't call people this, can't call people that. And then we bring in like a whole other, you know, like LGBTQ community. Now you're like, oh, shit. I, 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 I just thought they were all just this one thing. And so for a lot of people who, who don't keep up with social, um, with social stuff, you know, like if you're in your fifties or something, you're just, you know, just going to Costco and, and watching the news every half, you know, when it comes on at six 30, you're not well versed in, you know, uh, LGBTQ, um, stuff or uh, any minority um, mm-hmm. issues that's going on, so you could be caught off guard and you can kind of fall into the that hole. But I feel like people get defensive because they've been able to do it all their life. They mm-hmm. feel like, oh well, you know, I, I I've been doing this all my life. Shouldn't I just be able to? It's like no, you life is about learning and growing from those mistakes and, and and you shouldn't there shouldn't be an age where you're just cut off 
from learning new things. Yeah, I think so. Like a good example of this actually is my my grandpa, who is uh, of reference now in this podcast more than I expected <laughs> to. But he, uh, although that part, I actually might not. That might not. This might be the first reference the listeners hear of uh, my grandpa. But he was a uh, like lifelong. Spokane. So I lived in. I think he grew up in Ritzville, which is just Spokane. In my mind, <laughs> it's just the same place. Uh, and he took in a black son. He has uh, my uncle Lanny is a black man, and uh, he he did this in like the I think the nineteen late sixties or early seventies. Ooh, which it, yeah, which in Spokane like that's pretty wild, right? Yeah. So my grandpa's like the most progressive guy in Spokane in nine in late in the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies, votes Democrat his whole life, and then by the time he passed away, like he would say stuff that I'd be like, "Oh man, grandpa, like you can't." Yeah, he absolutely still said colored. Like the yeah. he uh but like. I know that he didn't hate people or view them as different. He just wasn't, he didn't have a TV. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. he was ignorant, not racist, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, by, by the way, uh, I think that's an era of men that fought uh, multiple wars in Asia. And there was definitely some, like, uh, overt racism in the in that generation of men i oh, think yeah my dad was the same way asian people for some reason he was weirdly like antagonistic towards mm -hmm. um asian people which just made me like them more like, <laughs> well it, they can't be all that bad if you hate them yeah and i, mean, I think we have a, a similar thing going on right now with like middle eastern people and people yeah. i mean I, I don't know how old you are harry but you're gotta be how old are you harry I am uh, 39. Okay, so I'm, I'm 34. I'm, <laughs> I'm 34, and I think there is, like, guys roughly our age, there's a segment of, like, war veterans who are not in love with Middle Eastern people. Oh, yeah. I, I talk to my buddies who are in the – who are um, still in the military, and they are – you know, some of the things they'll say, I'm like, dude, you can't say that. I don't care – how many <laughs> I don't care that you know that you went to war with them that doesn't mean you get to call them that because when you start using those when veterans start using those terms they use the like to use the excuse well they were shooting at me or whatever but when you start demeaning what a human being is by using those certain words then you you allow yourself to just be able to do whatever you want to them and that's you, you know that's not what you you want out of um people walking around just looking at people as less than human yeah but isn't that like that's kind of what we do anyway we just change the words right like when yeah when like we go oh that's a straight white guy or that's a karen or that's a, i mean it's obviously been done with black people and minorities in uh, historically also but it's like oh that guy's uh he's a liberal so i don't have to think like i his entire personality and life is painted by this one political leaning he has so i don't actually have to get to know him as a person i know he's a yeah. liberal so i don't give a shit about his opinion uh I, I think humans have to do that in order to 
to um, hate each other as much as we do. We, I, I feel like, I feel like, because anytime there's a war going on, you always notice how um, the people we're fighting against are all of a sudden so inhumane that they're just um, a bunch of savages, basically, that we mm-hmm. don't really have to respect. And, and, and I feel like that's what we do um, on a smaller extent when, when, when people call um, liberals libtards or mm-hmm. we call somebody a Karen, then we're like, we, we don't think about like that but they have person. a family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's like, I mean, and maybe that's like, and I planned on talking more about having a kid, but I know uh, I'm I'm uh, monopolizing your time a little bit, uh, and you're by the way monopolizing monopolizing the time you would otherwise be spending with your kid. Uh, oh I, no, we decided um, she's getting her hair done, so I was like, nope, uh, um, I'll see you later. I'm not <laughs> hanging around while you get your damn hair done. Well, that's exciting for me then, because then I feel a lot <laughs> less guilty. Uh, I think that you start to think about that stuff differently when you have a kid and a family because like even you know uh this is like maybe a gross admission but i believe that we should be doing more as a country to further uh black people and minorities and specifically i actually think i I generally don't like the continued subcategorization of people but have you seen that term uh the b-i-p-o-c black and indigenous people but but I didn't know what it meant. So it's black and indigenous people of color. And I actually think that is one where the plight of black people and indigenous people in this country is so much different and so married to uh, colonialism and manifest destiny and white supremacy and all that stuff that I think that it actually is... Because you'll hear people say like, Asians are doing fine and it's like yeah that that's not like I mean I know that it's not great to say but the plight of an Asian person in this country is different than the plight of a black person in this country yeah and uh so I I I I think that like I do agree that we need to do like as a as an American citizen I think America needs to do more to further the cause of uh black people and native americans in this in this country also I think that if I am up for a job and a black guy is up for the same job and he's less qualified than me, I'm not going to be happy that he gets the job. You know that's, what I mean? I feel like that's. Uh, I feel like that should just be across the board, just a normal thought, right? If I'm quali- if I'm qualified, if I'm more qualified for something than somebody else, I should get that position not somebody just to fill a quota that you might have but that's like on an individual scale i do think that we need to like uh do more to narrow the wealth gap and we need to do uh more to narrow the education gap and we need to do by the way i say this as like a lower middle class guy with no college degree (laughs) like i'm not uh i these like this isn't um, it's not like I already got mine. And so now I can, I'm also trying to like move up in the world myself. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I can say that the government, government wants that, but I also like 
my individual experiences. Like I want to be able to pay for my daughter to go to college. And I, I would think that just gaining qualifications, I want to just like make as much money as I can uh, to be able to do that. And so like in my life, I don't want, I would like to have affirmative. This is like, by the way, what I'm saying is like, these are all like examples of uh, where I'm weak on this issue, I guess. But I would like to have affirmative action in the world and have it not affect me personally, right? Like that's I certainly think that it's got merits and we should be doing more. And I would like if we had it, I would like if it didn't cause me to miss out on opportunities, which is maybe not uh something that's actually a fair thought. Like I don't I don't have any numbers or anything, but I think that's a common uh thought. Yeah. With, um, with with white people is that oh affirmative action means that um uh I come in qualified somebody comes in not qualified and because he's black he gets that position and I've I've never been I, I've never gotten hired because of affirmative action but I I, I don't. I don't see it that way. The way I see it is two people come in, they're both qualified, but in a normal system where affirmative action wouldn't, in a normal system, well, not a normal system, I mean, in a system without affirmative action, that uh, white person might get hired for any number of reasons. Right. Um. Whereas that black person would not be hired just because of the color of his skin. I feel like affirmative action is just there. And I mean, you know, it's it's not a perfect system because I mean, there's no way to perfect something like that. But it, it's just to ensure that everybody's getting looked at um, fairly. Yeah. And, um, to um, talk about your your, your other um, comment, I think a lot of people, when it comes to Asians, they just assume, well, Asians are doing well because of what I've noticed around me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's just as many, I mean, you know, per capita, I can't say it just raw number-wise, there's just as many Asian um, uh low middle class poor Asians as any other group that's represented in um America. It's just that um Asian culture is very um well let's let's take care of everything in house. Mm-hmm. If if we're gonna be if we're if we're gonna be poor, let's just be poor and just stick to just stick together in our um, community or family cluster. And uh, I think because like Asians and Native Americans are so um, uh, overlooked for um, a lot of the times that we just don't see um, the things that are wrong in our communities. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think that the... Uh... I think the biggest thing is that the it's to me there's like a definite racial divide but there's 
an equally defined class divide. Oh yeah. And so I think that what's what's to me this is like maybe getting into like a conspiratorial part of my brain but uh the mainstream media is owned by the rich and it's interned yeah. by the rich uh as we <laughs> talked about earlier and uh there is there are perverse incentives to further the divide in this country between cuz it's it's so uh it's it's poor white people and poor black people are both extremely loyal voting blocks yeah poor black people vote democrat poor white people vote republican i don't think you can get there without to that place where these two people in the same economic system see the world or economic situation see the world so differently without manipulation of the information that's going to them and that's what i feel is like the like we've there's incentive in dividing people right you can't have how many 24-hour cable news stations can you support if the poor people rise up against the rich people right (laughs) um i don't think you know what i don't think that's a conspiracy theory the only reason why it would be labeled a conspiracy theory is because Rupert Murdoch hasn't just come out and said it right. outright. I'm not, the, the other thing is, like, I'm not doing the research. I'm going off of like <laughs> some knowledge that I have about media and also this, like, these voting stats. But I'm not saying. I I also think like our vision of our view of racism is always like this. It's always like American History X, and if there's not. Or it's like a person twirling a mustache, like some. E- <laughs> That's what I say in this world. There's not like an evil person looking over the world twirling a mustache. Uh, I think evil's very rare. I think perverse incentives are are much more common. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I think you hit the <laughs> the nail right on the head with that. There's not a there's there's no real evil like comic book evil person. I think right. everybody has their agendas and they and they push their agendas and to better their odds of getting the things that they want. And I, I feel like you're you're right. I feel like because you you will talk you could talk to Asian people who never met um a black person and they will have an opinion of them that you're like, man, how did you get that opinion of somebody you've never, you've never met? It, it's got to come from somewhere. And, and, and what's the common. Yeah, that's attitude? a great point. It, the common trait is that news and the media pushes a certain view because, you know, the news is, the, the news doesn't really reflect what's actually happening in the world. It's reflecting someone's view of what they see happening in the world. Right. That's a good point. So, so like Fox News, people go, oh, man, Fox News is just so uh, just so over the top conservative and just so ridiculous. And it's like, not really. I mean, it's basically the view of Rupert Murdoch how he sees um, what's going on in the world. And that's just filtered down to the reporter that's 
on the actual camera. Yeah, I think like the reporting on Fox News, like I've seen stuff where I've been like, oh, this is a Fox News article and it's like very fairly criticizing or not criticizing. It's very fairly reporting negative information about Donald Trump. The the yeah. thing about Fox News is they're not really news most of the time. It's like these pundits. Tucker Carlson isn't a reporter. He's a personality. He's his yeah. he has to be uh he has to be flamboyant. Otherwise he's not going to attract viewers and then attract advertisers and then and it's like, you know, you don't it sucks that our media is driven by these like the you have to be this bombastic person to attract viewers and that's what's incentivized but it's also like i don't want state-run media yeah i mean there's <laughs> i we you know in a perfect world uh advertisers would just fund what's ever on television and uh the people wouldn't have to behave a certain way in order for everything else to fall into order that you know like there would be tucker carlson wouldn't have to because he i find the way that the pundits on fox news work is very smart in that they'll say something that's just they won't just go out and be out and out 100 percent david duke racist Mm-hmm. But they will get you about twenty to thirty percent of the way there, and just let you, and just let that linger in the air. So it's enough to get people to watch it because it will, um, it it just reinforces their um, outlook, and it's also enough to just get the advertisers to go. Man, there's a lot of people looking at that. Yeah. So it's brilliant. If I- it wasn't so. Um, terrible. I do think it's uh, it's a little bit. It, I think that exists on on uh, both sides of the media fence, though. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, goodness, yeah. I've yeah. I've read some. I've had people send me like articles from like like a more liberal um reporting um source station, and I I will read it and I'll go, what the. F- is going on with this <laughs> this this is not this is kind of the truth but it's not it's not the truth as in the way that i see the truth which is the truth is not liberal or conservative the truth is just na- like nature it's just it's just bare right i agree Were you worried that nobody had tried to hold comedy to a puritanical standard this week? Never fear, the Puritans are at it again. Thank you guys. I hope you enjoyed Harry Riley. I, um, there's a comedian that I, or not a comedian, uh, an economist that I like a lot named Glenn Lurie, who did, I don't, so he did Sam Harris's podcast and I don't have a good feel for if Sam, cause here's what I know about Sam Harris. 
people probably immediately don't like him because he does Joe Rogan's podcast. And I can't figure out if that's, I, I don't, it's like, I know Jordan Peterson is in, is, is Sam Harris like a right wing? He also, he has a meditation app. How could he be like a right wing hack? Um, but Glenn Lurie's a great economist and, and they talked about, it's an old episode of Sam Harris's podcast, but they talk about, uh, racial inequality and kind of like the ways that, uh, that were, we hesitate to talk about it. And I thought I was very happy with the conversation that I had with Harry. I thought Harry was, uh, I thought he had a very interesting and individual opinion on racism. And Harry's a guy, by the way, I, don't, I didn't say this, but he's uh, a guy where when I almost invariably, when I tweet something that is, I'm like, ooh, is this, is this like on the edge? Have I reached the edge? Have I possibly crossed the edge? Almost invariably, Harry Riley is the guy that likes that tweet. And I'm like, okay, if Harry J. Riley likes this tweet, then I'm good. Follow him on Twitter and Instagram at uh, King Pepper Snake. Really funny follow. All right. <clears throat> nice cough that I'm not going to edit out of this podcast because I don't have time. Uh, I want to talk about comedy because there's been some comedy news. Uh, two things have happened. Um, there's a lot of moralizing of comedy clubs that are reopening across the country. And I think part of the thing is that comedians, here's an example of how comedians think comedy is extremely important. I have an entire segment of this stupid podcast dedicated to talking about comedy. Uh, people are moralizing comedy clubs that are reopening right now as though the people that own those comedy clubs are normally not small business owners, that they don't have families to feed, that it, they aren't struggling financially, that they are in some way different from the guy that owns the bar that reopened or the restaurant that reopened or the shop that reopened, whatever. That they, <clears throat> because comedy is on some other moral standard for some reason, because this place, a bar operates seven days a week for uh, 12 hours a day or something like that. And a comedy club operates like 12 hours a week total as a bar. And they have to make up a week's worth of sales. A place that's a dedicated comedy club has to do make a week's worth of money in that chunk of time. And we are moralizing those places differently than we're moralizing bars. Uh, you can be mad that your state allowed bars to reopen, but I don't think that your expectation for a business that is struggling like every single business in the world, especially in the country, uh, is struggling right now. If given the opportunity to open, we can't, it's nice when you see someone say like, oh, we don't think it's, we think it's safer for us to open up in phase three. Now, in a lot of cases, those places might change their mind because phase three is happening later than they might have expected when they made that declaration. Also, 
if the government says bars and restaurants are allowed to be opened at reduced capacity, meeting these standards, and a place opens at reduced capacity, meeting those standards, who is to blame? Listen, I'm not the kind of person, I'm not like a corporations or people too kind of person. Uh, these are not generally, I, I, don't, I can't think of a single comedy club chain that's owned by, it's not like, like Walmart has a, a line of comedy clubs. Like at most, you've got like people that own seven or eight comedy clubs. And it's usually a group. But even then, within that city, that place employs not only a ton of comedians. And that's the other thing. Why are we moralizing comedians for going out and performing when it's – are you – like the bartender at the your local bar, he's allowed to go or she's allowed to go work to attempt to make a living. But a comedian – it's because we don't – even comedians. And these are the people who are doing the worst of it, the worst of the moralizing – but even they don't view comedy as a job. They view comedy as this thing, as like a summer camp, uh, like a summer camp activity that's unnecessary to their lives. But listen, Gabriel Rutledge, Megan Gailey, the two people I've had on this podcast before today, Harry Riley to a large extent, make their livings off of comedy. And so... Why are we holding comedians who are labor to a different standard than bartenders who are labor? Why are we holding comedy clubs who are small businesses to a different standard than bars, restaurants, uh, local shops, coffee shops that are small businesses? Usually it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I, again, like if, if you're upset that your government has reopened these places, Take it up with them. But why you would single out comedy clubs, especially if you work in the industry of comedy in any way, it doesn't make sense to me at all. Why would you want there to be less opportunity for you when this is all over? Uh, Jessica Curson, a New York comedian, um, very funny New York comedian, faced some backlash this week about... Uh, a character she did on Instagram. It was a character, I think she called her Shaniqua, and it was like a stereotypical black voice criticizing Donald Trump. She's a she's a white Jewish woman. And somebody posted it. This is what happens, right? Somebody's got a screenshot of this or a screen uh, record of this from four years ago. She posted on an Instagram story this thing. And this actually kind of dovetails well with what I talked to Harry about, which is we, uh, Jessica Kirsten gets called a racist because of this. And I do think there's like a, there's a good argument that the character she was playing was, uh, a racist depiction of a black person. It's a stereotype. It's a, a stereotype of, I think what many people, black or white would consider like the lowest rung of uh intelligence and that is like no matter how you feel about that that like we know the rules it's we're in 4 years ago when she recorded this she knew the rules uh that being said comedy is 
hard. And Jessica's like, I think in her late forties, maybe, uh, she's been doing comedy a long time. She's been doing voices and characters on stage for the entire time she's been doing comedy. I don't think that she has hate in her heart. I don't think this is like, I talked to Harry about this is incidental racism, uh, not overt racism. And I do think this process has educated Jessica Kirsten about the way some people feel about the jokes that she does. But what we do is we put people on their heels immediately because you can't have a self-reflection about the ways that you've maybe been incidentally racist without risking losing your career. And also like you also run the risk of these like disingenuous apologies, which then morph into a new reason to dislike you. Uh, Jimmy Fallon made like he he said, thank you for holding me accountable for uh, an impression he did of Chris Rock 20 years ago. Um, that was signed off on by a bunch of other writers that was written by a bunch of other writers. And I, whether the writers were black or not, uh, is is relevant because it was SNL. It's probably pretty unlikely that they were, but it's he's he made his he's already put the millions in the bank. Thank you for holding me accountable. Comedy's not your moral center. Comedy should should not be your moral center, and it's not some romanticized. Ernest Hemingway fucking, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, that used to write for ESPN, the fear and loathing in Las Vegas guy. What's that? Oh man. I'm going to think of it right as I <clears throat> fear and loathing in Las Vegas is about Hunter S Thompson. It's not some bullshit. Like, uh, this person, we're just so all like, so fatally flawed, some shit like that. But comedy relies on pushing against the edges of morality. This is for the same reasons that the taboos of like homosexuality and race used to get laughs are just our society has shifted. And back then people were moralizing homosexuality. And so we got laughs by pushing against it. They were moralizing. We're just, this is the thing. We've been Puritans this whole time. As we've stopped thinking we were Puritans and our our ideologies have shifted away from Puritanism, we've just found new things to be evangelicals about. Comedy's not your moral center. Let Jessica Curson continue to have a career and maybe, and not feel like every time somebody makes a misstep, they're at like at risk of losing their career. And maybe she's a little more eloquent in the way that she deals with this. She's a great comedian. Uh, I don't know her, but by, by most accounts, a very nice person, um, by most accounts from white people and people of color. So it's, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that, that this is the corner she's painted into. No matter how many weeks in a row Casey strikes out talking about serious topics, he keeps swinging. 
Also I'm British. Why did I use a baseball metaphor? Alright, I want to talk about a serious topic. Um, I'm not going to talk about it for very long because the Harry thing, the Harry interview went long. Again, check it out on uh, patreon.com slash the Casey McLean. Full length interview, but uh, this period of time, the pandemic has been an amazing time for the advancement of data visualization. We've seen some of the what I, the greatest efforts in data visualization that I've ever seen. Some beautiful displays of pretty scary data. And what we've seen also is that data weaponized in a way that's pretty dangerous. So you'll hear people talk about how my state should be open because there's no cases. And then it reopens. And then the fact that there used to be no cases and now there are some cases are, is evidence that the reopening shouldn't have happened or whatever. We always knew that, that like this, there wasn't any doubt that the behavior of just staying in your house and doing nothing was going to cause cases to go up. I do think there's places like Florida right now that are like at a critical point. Uh, Washington State reacted pretty quickly. Washington State has returned to peak level. But Washington State's peak level was never as bad as New York got, as Florida is right now, as some of these other southern states are. Uh, also, like, there's... There's a lot of this discussion about how, like, I've heard a lot of people say, like, oh, well, you, this person's old, so they're very likely to get it. Oh, this person's fat, so they're very likely to get it. Oh, that person's a kid, so they're very unlikely to get COVID-19. Because what we've seen is the fatality rate is substantially different at a at lower and higher ages. At high weight versus low weight, the fatality rate... But the transmission is the same. Nobody has said, no scientist has said that kids don't get COVID. What they've said is they recover from it because that's what the data shows. Fat people aren't more likely to get COVID-19. They're less likely to survive it. So everybody needs to be careful. It's not just kids. It's not just old people or young people, or whoever that needs to be careful. Everybody needs to be careful. And then, uh, I think that the, an interesting thing that I've seen is people, I said this on the last episode when I was talking about people needing good news and good news is for the week, but they talk about, they'll talk about new cases and then someone will inevitably say like, oh, how many negative tests though well right now we're at a place where we're testing more than we ever have 
and our positive test rate is also going up. Which, if things were staying the same and we had more tests, you would expect that the positive test rate would go down. If things were getting worse and we had more tests, there would be some point where our positive test rate would actually stay the same. But because we have more tests, we would uh, we would be testing at a lower threshold. So things could be getting worse with a positive test rate. Well, we're testing more and the rate's going up. Things are getting worse. Is People will say, like, oh, well, well, cases are a function of testing. That's true. But testing doesn't manifest cases in people. Testing is the way that we calculate it. That's why it's a function of testing. Wear your goddamn mask. That's the end of it. Wear your mask. That's a good, I think a good spot to end this on. Wear your mask. I understand. I've always understood the constitutional argument against shutting down the economy. I don't agree with it, but I've always understood it. I don't understand the constitutional argument against wearing your goddamn mask. Please listen to this next part. It's almost over. Share this podcast with a friend and join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the KC McLean. There are an extra 30 plus minutes of interview with Harry J. Riley, Gabe Rutledge, and Megan Gailey, all for only $5 per month. All right, thank you for listening. Uh... I'm doing a show as you as you listen to this tomorrow. Um, I'll post it on my Facebook page. It is called "Some Questionable Content." I am making I'm doing a debate with local comedians live on the internet. Um, it's I believe it's for charity. Uh, it should be fun. Check that out at the Casey McLean is my Facebook. If you put that in, you'll find me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, at the Casey McLean. I'll send out some stuff about it. Um, future dates at the com slash calendar. Trying to revamp the uh, the website. We'll see how that goes. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Remember to tell a friend and subscribe yourself. Uh, I will talk to you next week. Uh-huh.